Hey everyone, I am Fran. And I'm Tom. And we are the co-hosts of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Yeah, and on the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, we talk about native plants, obviously, and also a lot of ecological topics. We have sit down with experts, we sit down with authors, we sit down with college professors, and really dive into some of these topics that you might not always think about when it comes to ecology and native plants. And, you know, doing this, we have a good time, too. We have a couple laughs. So oh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so uh, make sure you tune in every Friday, and until then, keep it native. One time I did a deer rescue, and it was right by that store, Wyeth. And the cop was there, and so I said, um, okay, I'm going to tranquilize it, and then you're going to have to dispatch it because it had two broken legs and a broken back but it had these amazing antlers. He said, okay. So he killed it, he shot it. And I said, could you just wait here? I'll be right back. He goes, yeah, there was some guy who was driving by and he saw it and he said he wanted the animal. So I knew then that guy was probably a hunter and he wanted those antlers. So I went home, which was only five minutes away. I got a saw, my best saw, and I came back. And the cop said to me, I'm sorry, but I have to go now. I have another call. I go, oh, that's okay. I'll see you. Thank you so much. I got my saw and I sawed off the antlers because the animal was dead. I pulled it into the woods and I sawed off the antlers. I couldn't believe I was doing it. There I was like sawing away and um, I got them off and it was not easy. And the person who had called about the deer, she was so upset, worked at Wyeth. So I went in and I said, "Um, would you like to have one of these? I took them off because I didn't want the hunter to have them. He was not getting those antlers. Hey humans, welcome back. If you haven't already figured it out, today's episode is all about hunting. We're going to hear from some of Long Island's most passionate deer hunters. They're here to set the record straight and debunk some of the stereotypes that you may have associated with hunters. Hunting is an integral part of many of the East End's local deer management programs. But is it effective? And more importantly, is it right? I'll be honest, I had some pretty strong feelings going into the making of this episode. I've been a vegetarian since I was 15. I'm a huge animal lover. Jane is a close friend and mentor of mine. There's no point in pretending I'm neutral when it comes to hunting. Before I actually talk to any of them... My impression of hunters coming into this series was pretty stereotypical. I thought they were camo-wearing, beer-drinking, conservative-thinking, macho men, slinging arrows or shooting rifles left and right, proudly displaying dozens of deer heads on their living room walls. Speaking with animal rescuers like Jane and Dell seemed to confirm my preconceptions. Jane described a time when she was walking on the beach and stumbled upon a mother and baby deer with bullet wounds left for dead. Dell recounted how during several rescues, he found injured deer struggling to walk due to poorly shot arrows piercing their legs. Adrian, the rehabber at Evelyn Alexander, told me that the most recent deer they treated at the center had an arrow through its neck. All of these anecdotes corroborated what I thought to be true, that hunters love to shoot and don't care how many animals are left injured and suffering along the way. When I started looking into the rules and regulations for hunting on Long Island, I was shocked to learn how easy it is to get a hunting license in New York. All you have to do is take either a one- or two-day hunter's education and bow safety course. As long as you complete the course, you'll get a license, and you never have to renew it. It's yours for life. 
I started to understand why so many deer are shot but not killed and left to suffer. A few hours isn't enough to make someone a skilled hunter. Lack of skill leads to sloppy shots, and sloppy shots lead to agonizing pain. If you're gonna go out with a bow and arrow, make sure that these people know what they're doing. They can't just go out and buy the equipment and get the permit and hunt. I think it's really important that they are skilled so that if they are gonna shoot the animal, they know what they're doing. I just think there's much more than getting the permit. Killing an animal for the purpose of consuming it is one thing. Look, I don't eat meat, but I also don't judge people who do. As I talked to these animal rescuers, however, I realized that unskilled hunters often do grievous injury to animals, who then escape from target range. There's no reward for the hunters, only unnecessary suffering for the animals. And these are the people who supposedly want to eradicate deer completely. What a selfish thing, I thought, given that we are the reason there are too many deer in the first place. Despite these feelings, I also knew that hunting plays an important role in this story, and that hunters deserve the chance to tell their side, just like rescuers. When I found some hunters to speak to, I was skeptical, but open to hearing them out. The interviews you're about to hear were by far the most nerve-wracking ones I did. So before I had time to back out, I got my gear ready, braced myself, started the call, and pressed record. I'm Eve Bishop, and this is Dear Humans. We met through Long Island Deer Hunting Page. This is Marissa Estacio. She grew up in Northport and now lives in Center Reach on Long Island. We heard from her briefly in the first episode. Her dad was a falconer, so she was exposed to hunting at a young age. But she didn't start hunting herself until she bought a house with her husband that was adjacent to the woods. She quickly fell in love with the sport and joined a Facebook group for hunters on Long Island. It was there that she met someone who would change everything. There's a lot of guys on there. A lot of guys. That's Jacqueline Molina. She grew up in Smithtown and now lives in East Setauket. She's been hunting for about six or seven years now and was part of the same Facebook group as Marissa. And the way that we actually met, Marissa had posted one of her wedding pictures, and it was her and her husband. They were both shooting their bows in their, you know, their wedding outfits. <laughs> outfits. Their wedding. <laughs> and, Our uh, wedding attire. Your wedding attire. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, that's goals. Like, I want that. And I remember I took a screenshot to see, because I was like, I want to do pictures like this when I get married one day. And then um, she had gotten her first buck, so I commented. I was so excited that there's a woman, A, posting in the group, and B, that she got, like, a little buck. So I sent her a message, and I was like, hey, that's awesome. Congratulations, and we started like small talking. After our conversation, I went searching on Marissa's Instagram for the wedding pictures that Jacqueline spoke about. I quickly found them, as well as a slew of images of a bikini rocking, snapback wearing Marissa posing with her bow in a pumpkin patch. Jacqueline's Instagram is full of images in the same vein camo clad selfies in the woods, girls' night snapshots, and lots of hot pink. During our video call, Jacqueline and Marissa sat shoulder to shoulder, each using one bud from the same pair of headphones. Their friendship oozed through the screen. I had to gently remind them several times to please stop finishing each other's sentences. I mean, I'm trying to make a podcast here. Jacqueline told me that as she continued chatting with her new friend via Facebook, she also spent a lot of time practicing her marksmanship at an archery range called Smith Point. One day, she noticed there was another woman there watching her. 
I was shooting my bow and she kept watching me shoot and she was like, wow, like another woman's here. Her name is Julia Weisenberg. She's a deer hunter born and raised on Shelter Island. When she saw Jacqueline at Smith Point, she was instantly intrigued. Jacqueline was next to me and uh, she had pink arrows. Usually, it was just Julia and a bunch of men. So she decided to strike up a conversation. So we exchanged numbers and we're talking about hunting. And then, I don't know, it's like we've never stopped texting since that day. So then she asked if I wanted to be part of the New York Times article. In February of 2020, the New York Times published an article about women deer hunters on Long Island. The article talked about deer overpopulation and how women, who are currently the fastest growing demographic of hunters, are taking on the challenge of bringing Long Island's deer herd down. Jacqueline agreed to be a part of the article with Julia and also brought Marissa along. It was the first time they had ever met in person. It was as if we'd known each other for a while and we just thrived on the fact that we had this similar interest with the outdoors and fishing and hunting, but we're still girly and pink nail polish and makeup. The three women also bonded over their shared frustration with the male-dominated Long Island deer hunting Facebook page. They had all experienced their fair share of judgment and misogyny as women in the group. I got my first buck this past November, and I remember when I posted, I was so excited. And some of the comments I got were like, you didn't shoot that, you didn't get that, there's no way, or you're just doing it for attention, or you just want a boyfriend. I'm just like, why do we post in here anymore? Fueled by their shared frustrations, newfound friendship, and publicity from the New York Times article, Julia, Jacqueline, and Marissa knew they had to do something with this momentum. Together, these three women decided that enough was enough. It was time to create a safe space for women hunters on Long Island. They created a Facebook page and Instagram account titled Long Island Babes and Bucks. They hoped that with the help of a dedicated virtual space for women who hunt, more women could feel empowered to ask questions, share their hunting experiences, and meet other hunters without any men involved. The response to the group was amazing. When the New York Times published the article, hundreds and hundreds of women all across Long Island started joining the group. Some women would say to us as we met them and our circle expanded that they felt intimidated. They felt sometimes like if they posted something in these groups, either the male hunters would make fun of them or mock them or say it's like a silly question, or they would just feel internally like they would be apprehensive to like pose a question. And so if people don't ask questions, then, then how are they going to learn? Right. So we wanted to create an environment where women, they could feel supported. There's no such thing as a silly question. As the community continued to grow, Jacqueline, Julia, and Marissa felt increasingly empowered in their sport. And while they formed deep bonds with some of these women, the ridicule they faced from non-hunters has more or less remained the same. One of the main misconceptions these women have faced is that they are trophy hunters, meaning the sole reason they shoot deer is to hang their antlers on their walls. Many people, like Jane, think this kind of hunting is cruel and inhumane. They believe that taking a life for the sake of a trophy is selfish, but that's not what Jacqueline, Julia, and Marissa do. And while they explain to me that yes, there are some hunters who hunt exclusively for trophies, that's not the case for the majority of the hunters in their community, specifically their community of women. 
Over the course of our conversations, Julia, Jacqueline, and Marissa laid out a few main reasons as to why they hunt deer. I'm going to walk you through each of those reasons. Population control is one of them. I would say like 90% of the women in the group hunt to feed their families or they hunt for like nuisance permits like I do. So they're trying to bring down the tick population by reducing the herd of deer or they're living in areas that are overpopulated with deer and they're trying to do a service. Julia is a part of the Shelter Island Deer and Tick Committee. She works alongside Dr. Bevilacqua, who we heard from in previous episodes. She mentioned that she has a nuisance permit which is a special kind of hunting license that gives additional permissions to hunters who harvest animals, like deer, that are overpopulated or a disturbance to the environment. All three of the women I spoke to say that deer management is one of their major motivations for hunting. In fact, they've been recruited by various people to help manage deer populations. Marissa, for example, was asked by a farmer to hunt his property. I was hunting a farm when I took my button buck and literally the farmer said, whatever you see, please take it out because they are so overpopulated and all their crops get eaten. Similarly, Jacqueline has hunted properties for a landscape company owner and Julia helps manage deer populations on Shelter Island as a member of the Deer and Tick Committee. Despite the fact that they are killing individual animals, These women believe that they are improving the livelihood of the herd and the larger ecosystem as a whole. When there's too many deer, they're hit by vehicles, they suffer more disease, and they starve, actually. So I think a misconception is that people think that we over-harvest, but actually we're helping deer not starve. We're helping stop deforestation. If you send out hunters and you naturally harvest the amount that we're harvesting, we're actually barely keeping ahead of it. So we actually need to increase hunting. Julia explained to me that by taking the population down, hunters are helping prevent some of the destruction that deer do to the forest floor. And taking the herd down means that the remaining deer don't have to compete as much for food. Fewer deer, less starvation. Shelter Island's deer management program currently focuses almost exclusively on hunting. The deer management program is in play, and it basically allocates most of the resources to culling of deer. We feel like that's the best way to get the population down. And it does seem to be working. The number of deer being harvested each year is steadily increasing, and so is the number of hunters participating in the deer management program. Julia told me that in 2019, hunters killed 509 deer on Shelter Island. In 2020, they took 576. In 2019, 27 hunters participated in the program. And in 2020, that number was up to 40. And while this seems like a win for deer management, you may recall that decreasing the number of deer in any given place doesn't automatically mean you're solving the problems that have resulted from their overpopulation. We learned in the previous episode that deer herds have to be dramatically decreased in order to start affecting the incidence of tick-borne illnesses. Taking 67 more deer in 2020 than 2019 is something, but will it actually impact the amount of deer-related car collisions on Shelter Island? Will it restore the balance of the ecosystem? The hunters I spoke to do believe that hunting is the most effective deer management strategy, but they also know that as it stands, hunting can only help so much. There are two reasons for this. One, hunting regulations in some parts of Long Island prevent the hunters that are out there 
from harvesting as many deer as they could. If some restrictions were lifted, Marissa and Jacqueline think that hunters like themselves could make a much greater dent in the population. It's unfortunate that there's not a lot of places on Long Island you can hunt. There are some towns that you can't hunt in. So, you know, if they, if if they, they opened open up, up those towns, you know, you can get more hunters in there, you know, more deer control, and you won't see so many accidents. There's so many deer on Long Island that they would need to open up new spots and things like that for it to ever really, really diminish. And two, Julia says there just aren't enough hunters. Ideally, we would love to recruit new people. We're just trying to increase the amount of people that can hunt here in our township. It's a lost sport almost. Not as many people do it anymore. People shy away from it, and it used to be a lot more popular. We'll be back with more right after the break. Many of our countries are experiencing extreme weather patterns. I think the game is over, you know. Because it's happening more and more, and it's no longer this futuristic, hypothetical thing. You realize that, you know, this isn't a long, slow evolution of change. This is rapid. Living Planet, with Charlie Shield and Sam Baker. Environment stories from around the world. And you can only take so much out of the bank until there's nothing left in the bank. And what did this value here? Our monkeys were about to disappear before there were loads. No other animal there steps up to fill its role. They start to then disappear too. We don't even know all the species of wild bees that there are. Once the real ferns die, the last real swamps dry up, will we enter spaces that hold only digital memories of nature? Also disabled people have to be recognized in sustainability, usually it doesn't happen. I think the Gen Z is pissed actually. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. It's unclear just how much Jacqueline, Julia, and Marissa's efforts are helping to solve the issues that stem from overpopulation. But population control isn't the only thing motivating them. That brings us to the second reason why these women hunt. They hunt for food. Now, let me be clear. No one living in modern-day New York needs to hunt for sustenance. Anyone who wants to eat meat can simply go to the grocery store and buy it. And a lot of people, like myself, can choose to avoid meat altogether. But for these women, deer hunting provides a way for them to eat meat without feeding into the American factory farming industry, which is both environmentally destructive and highly unethical. Harvesting their own animals allows these hunters to exist outside of the livestock industry while still enjoying their fair share of local, sustainable meat. Everything that we harvest, we eat. When I got my first deer, that was like the best thing. I like dragged it out by myself, I butchered it myself, and then I cook it myself. So it's really awesome to never have anybody else touching it. Like it's literally my whole harvest. And the more you do it, the more you want to do it. The more you start getting into this lifestyle, the less you want to buy anything from a grocery store. It almost is like a turnoff. I haven't bought steak in a really, yeah. really long time, but I'm sure if I did, I would probably open the package and be skeeved out. It's brown and it's gross, and you know that it's been frozen and unfrozen and sitting in the grocery store for only, you don't even know how long, not to mention what happens to it before that. Julia explained to me that unlike factory farming, hunting for meat is environmentally friendly and the animal dies under relatively ethical and natural conditions. It's also much healthier. When Julia harvests a deer, she knows exactly where that meat comes from. No chemical additives, no preservatives, just meat. 
And just one deer provides enough meat to feed Julia's family for months, eliminating her need to buy factory farmed meat altogether. I don't really shop for meat in the supermarket. I always have enough deer meat that I can just cook it at home. Ridicule coming from non-hunters who still eat meat tends to upset Marissa the most. People who are non-hunters who still eat meat, they really have a warped yeah. perception of why we hunt. They say, like, how could you kill an animal? I'm like, but you eat meat. If it's a vegetarian, the argument's a little different. But somebody yeah. that eats meat regularly that is so against it and has a lot to say to me about it, you're eating a cow that was slaughtered in a slaughterhouse. Hunters like Julia, Jacqueline, and Marissa try their best to make use of every part of the animal wasting as little as possible. And if they ever have excess meat, there's a solution to that too. Shelter Island specifically is known for its venison donation program. Any hunter who harvests a deer on Shelter Island can bring the animal to a refrigerated container. The meat is processed and made available to anyone in need of food, free of cost. Program directors also coordinate with local food pantries in order to distribute meat to those who need it the most. We actually donated 3,500 pounds of meat this past season. So people can just go down to the town center and just, there's a huge freezer and they can just take as much meat as they want. <laughs> as Julia, Jacqueline, and Marissa spoke to me about how they hunt for food, not just for sport, I could feel myself getting more and more on board with hunting, at least their kind of hunting. I geared myself up to ask some of the tougher questions, like how do you respond to people who think hunting is unethical? And what I learned is that they put more care into being humane while hunting than I ever could have imagined. You have to make sure that the shot is ethical and you want the animal to succumb as quick as possible. You don't want it to suffer. And that's why you got to practice. Going into it, I had imagined that each of these women has probably killed dozens of deer over the years and shot even more. That's why when I found out each of them had only ever shot one or maybe two deer, I was surprised. People joke, like, you did that many hours in the field, like, and you only got, like, one deer. <laughs> yeah, because you have to pass up some stuff sometimes. These hunters are very strategic when it comes to taking a shot. Jacqueline told me that she'll never sling an arrow unless she's 99% sure it'll hit a major organ, killing the animal as quickly as possible. If we have a bad shot, we're not going to just fling an arrow. It's got to be a clear major organ shot or we're mm -hmm. not doing it because it's inhumane to the animal and it's just against our morals. Perhaps the thing that surprised me most during these conversations is that these women don't just respect and appreciate deer. They love them and feel deep sorrow each time they take a life. I thought that hunters and animal lovers were mutually exclusive. But when I asked all three of these women if they considered themselves animal lovers, they said yes. Hunting, they said, gives them a greater sense of connection to these animals. When Marissa was a kid, she got into a car accident with her family. A deer ran out in front of the car, making impact and dying instantly. At the time, it didn't really faze her. Everyone in the car was okay, and that was really all she processed. Years later, after she started hunting, she hit a deer herself when she was driving on the highway. This time, it affected her deeply. I could cry just thinking about it. It was so upsetting. And like the fact that my seven-year-old self as a non-hunter saw what I saw and it didn't phase me. But as a hunter, I saw that as an adult and it like brought me to tears. If anything, being a hunter makes you appreciate the animal even more. It makes you more attached to the animal. 
It's not something you want to see. Jacqueline has also experienced these intense emotions, especially when she's the one taking the animal's life. The doe that I got two years ago, she was a really large doe. And um, as soon as I tracked her and found her, I was concerned that she was pregnant. And I got really emotional about that. She was just a big mama doe. She was just big. She wasn't pregnant at all. But I cry every time I get a deer. It's exciting. It's emotional. It's like, wow, I did this. And I'm able to feed myself for the whole year. It's just a lot of emotions. But Marissa and Jacqueline have found that a lot of people still don't get it. They think, like I initially did, that hunting is a heartless sport, that these women feel no remorse for the lives that they're taking. They've gotten a lot of backlash, especially on social media. So we both have dogs. At one point I had three dogs, and I'll never forget when I first got my doe, I had posted it on my personal Instagram. This is before Babes and Bucks. And someone, a few people actually commented, people that I had known my whole life, they were just like, how could you? You have dogs. It's very emotional when someone looks at us as that we don't appreciate and respect and love animals. It upsets me. It does. We really like annoys me, actually. We just have a lot of respect for what we do and the animals. And, you know, we're not out there just slaughtering deer. What really makes me sad about the whole thing that people don't understand when they're so overpopulated like that they're getting hit by cars Mm -hmm. and they're not just all dying when they get hit by a car they're trying to survive with a broken leg and broken ribs and they're suffering and they're suffering for you don't even know how long so I think it's also important that people understand you know there's there's a whole reason behind it and we actually care about these animals you always feel remorse you always feel emotional towards the animal you're taking its life so I think that that's like a misconception that, that we have that, a disconnect yeah with what we're doing like we we do care about the animals for Julia Hunting is an entry point into a deeper connection with animals and the natural world. That special connection is the third and maybe the most compelling reason as to why these women hunt. For a lot of us, it's like a spiritual thing. I write poetry when I'm up hunting. Like, I write one poem every hunt. You let your mind go. You can get away from social media. You can disconnect. quiet and it's peaceful and you start seeing things because we're so bombarded with like social media and stuff flashing in our face and when you go out in the woods and you're with animals and evergreens and oaks and walnut trees and you, you know you start to look around you see new species of bird and bugs and it's calming it's a very spiritual sport marissa feels the same way Hunting has allowed her to connect with the natural world in a way that she never could before. It's funny, the way these women spoke about their relationship with nature reminded me a lot of how Dell and Jane explained their connections to wildlife. I realized that these two seemingly opposite sectors of people have more in common with each other than they do with people who don't deal with wildlife at all. It's fascinating that while hunting and rescuing have polar opposite goals, The lessons learned along the way are a part of the same philosophical thread. I think people don't understand there's like a depth to it and a connection to nature and the connection to the animal. I mean, it's so much more than just a hunt. It's a lifestyle. It teaches you things. It shapes you. It makes you a stronger person. So trying to get that out there is really important to us, too. Jacqueline believes that because of this misconception, 
hunters like herself receive an unfair amount of judgment and scolding. You know, we don't project our views and what we think and what we do onto other people, but we're constantly getting that projection onto us. And Julia says that since she's a hunter, she knows that when she goes out in public, she's being perceived as a representative of the hunting community. And because of that, she's cognizant that one wrong move could ruin someone's perception of hunting as a whole. When you're out in a community, remember that even though your camera's off, you're still a hunter. How are you behaving in a public establishment, in a bar, in a restaurant, in town hall, with people, with the elderly, with the young? You have to always be thinking, what message are you giving? So I always say to people, just every time you make a decision, think about how is that going to impact the greater hunting community? Would that make people reflect on us badly or would it make people understand what we do better? In addition to the judgment they face from non-hunters, Julia, Jacqueline, and Marissa also get their fair share of negative comments from people within the hunting community. Why? Well, they're women. There is a little stigma because if we go knock on someone's house and our hair is done and we look nice, they're going to be like, you guys hunt and they don't take us seriously. Julia also feels like her identity as a woman has affected the way other hunters perceive her. I think it's a misconception like that we can only be one way or that we have to be more of the traditional tomboy. When, when we're hunting, we're in hunting mode and we're super serious and we're focused and we're rugged and tough. And when we want to go out and just have a good time, kick back and put our heels on, then we do it. <laughs> All three women told me that founding Babes and Bucks has allowed them to embrace that duality. And they want other women hunters to feel empowered to do the same. Me and Jackie are both very big on the fact that you can be outdoorsy and almost tomboyish, and it's also okay to be girly. Like, yeah. we want it to be broadcasted that you can be both, you know? Let's it's it very louder. important. You can be both. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad I got to speak to these three outspoken women who are making their voices heard in such a male-dominated space. Throughout our conversations, I was able to identify with some of their experiences of not being taken seriously because they're women. Learning about hunting through this sympathetic lens allowed me to empathize with these hunters and in turn, be more open to their perspectives. I know not all hunters are as wise, caring, and thoughtful as these three, but knowing these women are out there has made me rethink the sweeping assumptions I had about hunters as a whole. I also want to quickly touch on the nuanced role that gender plays in this story. The kind of feminism that Marissa, Julia, and Jacqueline subscribe to isn't radically gender-bending. They're still operating under a system of traditional male and female gender roles, aka men are tough and rugged, whereas women like to dress up and wear pink nail polish. Marissa, Julia, and Jacqueline are not by any means obliterating these gender roles. Rather, they're playing on both sides of a very traditional masculine-feminine binary. Hence, you can be both. While this form of feminism may not be the most radical in, say, the liberal arts educational setting I'm used to, I would argue that in a culturally and politically moderate place like Eastern Long Island, it's pretty damn subversive. If nothing else, the feminist ideals of Babes and Bucks has empowered those within it. And that's gotta count for something, right? I feel like I grew up my whole life embarrassed that my dad was a falconer until I met Jackie and we started this group and now I'm like proud of it. Whereas my whole entire life, like I was so embarrassed by it. 
like over the weekend I was on a tuna trip covered in blood and then tomorrow we're doing a girls dinner we have to wear a dress or a romper wedges hair done super girly and then this weekend we're all going fishing again so it's okay to be both it's okay to do both and you can do both As I listened and learned from these three hunters, I couldn't help but think back to my conversation with Shanae Bullock, the Shinnecock environmental activist we heard from back in episode one. All of the values these women hold when it comes to hunting, respect, gratitude, and compassion to name a few, stem from indigenous philosophies. The native people of the East End have been hunting on this land long before anyone else, and we must give credit where credit is due. We've been hunting in these particular areas since time immemorial. The deer that live on our land, they are not new to the land. They've been there. They're generational. So our philosophy is that before you take anything that has a life or anything that contributes to life, you give an offering to that life and to creator before you take it. So you give and then you take. You don't take and then give. And you don't take too much. You take just what you are in need of. I'm not doing it because it's a sport and it's fun. I'm doing it because I'm going to feed my family. Not only am I going to feed my family, but I have tons of leather that I make clothing out of for ceremonies. The bones are utilized for different tools. And the sinew is still used for sewing, like thread. You know, it's a natural thing. There's no GMOs in what I hunt. You know, there's no hidden agenda or intent. You know, I know that what I'm eating is natural and it's healthy and and it was created by creator. All of this stuff is not new because we descend from people that had this compassion And the reason why I know that is because it's made up in our DNA. That's why we feel it. So where do we go from here? I've learned a lot over the course of this series, and I hope you have too. But I'm also not going to sit here and pretend like I know everything, or that I now have the perfect solution to this problem. I'm going to embrace the I don't knows and move forward with what I do know, And while I definitely don't have it all figured out, I certainly know a lot more now than I did when I started. So with that being said, here are some of my big takeaways on how I think we as a community should address this problem. First off, hunting. As you know, I was quite skeptical of hunters coming into this whole thing. I had an image in my head of what I believed it meant to be a hunter. And while some of those pieces remain intact, I now know that my preconceived judgments were reductive and as a whole, inaccurate. Look, I'm not saying I'm going to start eating meat again, and you certainly won't find me out in the woods with a bow and arrow anytime soon. But I learned that there are good hunters who have strong morals and a sense of respect for wildlife who are willing to do what it takes to make a difference in the world. I also know that in this imperfect world, even those with the best of intentions make mistakes. Arrows will continue to fly, and some of those arrows may lodge themselves in places they're not meant to be in. That's why we need our rescuers. We need our rehabbers. We need our animal rights activists who aren't afraid to speak out for these animals because they can't speak for themselves. They have no say in this conflict, even though it's about them 
we need to support and uplift the work of wildlife advocates. Because as long as there are human beings on the East End, there will be animals in need of help. Without these courageous individuals, the deer don't stand a chance. I've also realized that a lot of the big changes I'd like to see, like allowing rehabbers to treat adult deer for longer than 48 hours, enforcing laws about fencing and wildlife corridors, and allocating more resources toward the study of tick-borne illnesses, are at the hands of policymakers. That includes the New York DEC, local officials, and members of deer management committees. It's easy to feel helpless when these decisions are not ours to make. But people like Dell have shown me that if you don't like what you're seeing in local politics, you can make yourself seen. You can make your opinions heard, and you can change the minds of those in charge. One town hall meeting, one petition, one conversation at a time. While we fight for those bigger changes to be made, we can do things to protect ourselves and those around us in the meantime. We can make wildlife corridors in our backyards. We can take down our illegal fencing. We can adhere to the speed limit. We can spray ourselves with permethrin and read up on how to look out for tick bites. We can plant plants in our gardens that naturally deter deer. We can volunteer at wildlife rescue centers. We can donate to environmental causes. We can support indigenous communities who have been fighting this fight long before anyone else. We can talk to one another, learn, listen, and have open minds and open hearts. Speaking of listening, here's another thing I've learned. Every single person I spoke to in this series had valid points. Some of those points conflicted, but they all had their own value. And when pieced together, we can start to get a more complete mosaic of this issue and why it has put so many people in conflict with one another and with the deer. Each person in this story brings a different perspective to the table, informed by their upbringings, personal experiences, professions, and belief systems. Sure, I agree with some more than others, but the line between right and wrong is much more blurry than I originally thought. This issue is complicated and nuanced. People never fit neatly into categories like good, bad, right, and wrong. Deer overpopulation doesn't just affect those on the east end of Long Island. Really, it's a problem all over the country. And my hope is that this series has given people in other communities the knowledge and the tools to address these issues wherever they are. But even more than that, this conflict has forced me to examine something universal. What does it mean to be human? I think many of us are so focused on what makes us different as a species that we often forget that like Dr. Underwood said to me, we too are animals on this planet. And just like the deer, we are trying every day to survive. My wish is that more people started to recognize how connected we are to this planet and all its beings. It's not us and nature, it's just nature. And we're a part of it. I think if more of us come to terms with that, we may be able to decenter ourselves and have a little more compassion for the animals who, like us, just want to live. And when you find yourself about to curse a deer for eating your expensive plants or running out in front of your car, remember why that's happening in the first place. Remember that this is their home too. Remember that we don't have inherent authority over this land. And just because we can take advantage of it doesn't mean we should.
If we can learn to truly coexist with wildlife, we can build a world with a little less suffering and a little more peace. I mean, isn't that what we all want? And we have the power to do it. We are humans, after all. That's what makes us special. I think people are starting to come around and realize that they have to do something to help out this situation. We have to start listening to each other. Give a little bit of patience, a little bit of compassion. Animal rights activists, obviously they're very passionate just as we're very passionate. Nothing would stop me from helping an animal that's injured. Hopefully we keep getting opportunities to speak on how we feel about the subject and open people's opinions about it. I feel we already are. If you tell me you killed a deer and you fed your family, I have no problem with that. I'll respect you as I respect anyone. How can I be impactful? How can I be effective? Because I could just shout on the top of the mountains, but if no one's going to hear me, it's not effective. I am the man who took on the responsibility to protect the animals the best I can and educate young and old the best I can to have love and compassion and understanding for our wildlife. I don't view people as being the demon in this story. We are animals. We are part of the biota on this planet. I don't view us as being on the outside looking in. I view us as part and parcel of what's going on on the planet. I also believe that we created the problem. We can also solve the problem. Well, we can't fix all of these mistakes. We can't fix them. But what we can do is try to prevent more mistakes like this from happening. And I know it's not easy. And it'll be difficult, but you gotta start because these are lives, yours and theirs. We need more love, we need more people to walk lighter, with lighter hearts and not so many grudges. And we can see a serious transformation. I'm Eve Bishop. Dear humans, thanks for listening. Dear Humans was written, produced, and edited by me, Eve Bishop. All music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Caitlin Kelleher, Kim Trang Tran, Elizabeth Afuso, Ruchi Talmore, Lauren Chapman, Jack Bishop, Laura Joyce Davis, Nate Davis, the Shelter in Place Alumni Writing Group, and my Fall 2021 Media Studies Peer Group. Thank you to KSPC 88.7 FM, for allowing me to use the recording studio. And lastly, thank you to the Pomona College Summer Undergraduate Research Fund for helping to make this series possible. You can learn more about me and my work at evebishop.net. Some days, all I want to do is escape. I'm not just talking about getting out of my house. I'm talking about standing in a cathedral of redwoods, or the one time I saw the northern lights. That feeling that I'm part of something bigger. Escape can be small, too. Like the checkout worker who knows me, even though we've never seen each other's faces. Or the friend who hugs me and won't let go. 
That kind of escape flips a switch. It reminds me that even when the world is on fire, there is also beauty and delight. I can let my guard down. For a moment, I'm home. Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about embracing the journey in a world forever changed. We spent season two on a pandemic odyssey that brought us from one coast to the other and back again. In season three, we're bringing you stories in search of home. What do I want to welcome back into my life and what do I want to leave behind? We're not sure what home looks like anymore, but we know what we want from it. I want to know that I belong here. Not because of what I accomplished or earned, but because of who I am. I want a home where we don't pretend that our world isn't broken, but we're creating beauty from that brokenness. We're exploring how to be human in a way that feels expansive rather than exhausting. We're learning how to escape not out of life, but into it. Listen wherever you get podcasts or head to shelterinplacepodcast.org to join us on this journey in search of home.